Okay, let's turn back to 2 Samuel again, chapter 15. And this time I'm going to pick up with reading verse 13 um, to verse 32. Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women concubines to keep the house and the king went out with all the people after him and he stopped at the outskirts then all his servants passed before him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites 600 men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king then the king said to Ittai the Gittite why are you also going with us return and remain with the king for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place in fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today, since I go I know not where? Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, Go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. There was Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. Therefore Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. 
And David goes on and sends Hushai back to pretend to be uh, with Absalom in order to be a spy. And that we'll come back to that later this evening. Well, we've come now to what records for us what uh, was perhaps uh, the lowest point in the life of David, in his life, his darkest hour. We sometimes speak of the bottom falling out or of a person's world falling apart. Well, I think both of those expressions could be applied to David at this point. The bottom has fallen out in David's life and his world has fallen apart. Let me remind us ourselves, first of all, of the nature of this terrible calamity that has come upon him. We read in verse 13, A messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Now let's try again to put ourselves in David's place when this message came to, us, uh, came to him. I want us to, 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 kind of, to be able to feel something of the, uh, the terrible trial and a difficulty and affliction this was for David. It was a, what we might say, a fourfold calamity. First of all, he's suddenly confronted with the treachery of his own son, Absalom. As we saw last time, through all the various means, Absalom had secretly campaigned to steal away the hearts of the men of Israel from David and to take his throne. And all of this has been going on secretly now, unknown by David for four years. And this is David's own son who is doing this. And now he's made the bold move of having himself declared king in Hebron. And all the while, David thought that his son was in Hebron worshiping the Lord, keeping a vow that he had made to serve the Lord. That's what Absalom told his father. But he lied to his father. He was taking advantage of the spiritual concerns of his aging father to stab him in the back. And now as we come to our passage, David suddenly realizes this. He finally becomes aware of this. His eyes are open. And what a shock it was. And how painful it must have been for David. Think how deeply this must have hurt him. There's no greater trial than the rebellion of a child. And it's hard, you know, it's hard for the children when you're a child, and so there's still some children in here, it's hard for you to realize just how much your parents love you. Uh, you may, there's a little saying that some of you may have heard, I never knew how much my parents loved me until I had children. And isn't that true? I mean, just, just the experience of having children, I have children from all ages, from seven years old to 26, and the, all the varied experiences of being a parent had... That in itself had a great humbling and convicting effect upon me as I look back at my childhood and my teenage years and all the problems I put my parents through. Because now I have a better sense of how much my parents loved me and how much my actions and my attitudes and the things that I did affect, affected my parents. And so as we become parents, we begin to realize that, how much our parents really did love us. And how painful it must have been for David, then, for his own son to treat him like this. That little boy, again, he used to bounce on his knees, his little kisses and hugs he could remember, the times he played with his boy, the, the great uh, uh, hopes he had for him, but what does it all come to? Secondly, David is now confronted with the disloyalty of a large body of his people. At the end of verse 12, we read, And the conspiracy grew strong, 
For the people with Absalom continually increased in number. And now the message comes to David in verse 13. The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And again, think how deeply this must have hurt David. David loved the people of God. He had spent his entire life serving these people. He's the greatest king the nation of Israel had ever had or would ever have. He has selfishly served them for many years. In his earlier days, he was so popular, he was so loved, his great victories had caused the entire nation to receive him gladly as the Lord's anointed and to crown him as their king. And since that time, he's continued to serve them. He freed the nation from the threats of the heathen tribes who surrounded it. He defeated the Philistines. He conquered the Syrians. He brought to the country great wealth and prosperity. He's made Israel a great nation. He's taken Jerusalem from the Jebusites and made it the nation's capital. He reestablished the proper worship of God. It was David who brought back the Ark of the Covenant, putting it in its proper place. And also as a man who is very gifted in poetry and music, he himself has written many of the nation's finest songs. But after all that he has done for these people, what does it come to? A vast number of them have rebelled against him and have joined the conspiracy to have him destroyed. And this reminds us of just how fickle and unappreciative people can sometimes be, how easily past services are forgotten by the ungrateful hearts of men, and how painful this must have been for David. Thirdly, David is faced with the immediate and the very real threat of destruction for himself and his servants. Now we get an indication of just how formidable and how large this following for Absalom has become by David's response when he heard about it. When he receives word, he immediately recognizes the gravity of the situation and he orders everyone with him and supporting him to flee from the city. Verse 14 Arise, let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So there's no standing and fighting. He orders his servants to make haste and to flee the city. And remember, David was not a coward. He was a battle-hardened soldier. But the situation is that bad. And he's not willing to expose Jerusalem to the devastation that would take place if Absalom besieges it. So it's not a cowardly move. It was a kind move, and this also shows how large and powerful the army of Absalom must have been. It was no use at this point trying to resist him. Now, I want you to picture the scene. Here is David. He's now around 60 years of age. He's getting up in years, not the strong, virile young man that he once was back in the days when he was fleeing from King Saul, but he's forced to flee for his life and to flee the very city that he himself had conquered and made the capital of the nation. So he heads out with his household after him, the women and the children, with the exception of ten concubines that he leaves behind to keep the house. Little Solomon is probably about ten years old. He goes out with a small band of loyal servants, and there they go, walking down through the streets of Jerusalem for everyone to see his humiliation. And then fourthly, added to all of this is the recognition. Added to all of these other sources of pain 
is the recognition that much of what is happening now is at least in part the result of his own folly, his own sin. His sin referred to earlier of not uh, being faithful to properly discipline his son is now coming back to haunt him. But more than that, this is also fulfillment of what the prophet Nathan had said to David after his sin with Bathsheba. Do you remember that? God said in chapter 12, verse 11, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And here we clearly see God's word being fulfilled, and certainly David saw it as well. No doubt at this very moment, the words of the prophet were brought powerfully and freshly before David's mind. The chastening hand of God is in this. David is at one and the same time a man who's been greatly wronged and sinned against by Absalom and his people. And also they're sinning against God by rebelling against God's anointed king. And yet at the same time, Absalom is fulfilling God's word through the prophet that adversity would come upon David from his own household as divine chastisement. And surely David has not forgotten the word of the prophet. No doubt it came freshly to his mind once again. And truly, brothers and sisters, when the bottom falls out, when it seems that our world has fallen apart, when great trials come into our lives, it greatly adds to the Christian sorrow if we know that at least in part, our own folly has brought these things upon us. That in part, our own sin, our own foolish decisions, perhaps, are one of the reasons for, which, uh, for this mess that we now find ourselves in. David, now, David has been forgiven of his sins in the matter of Uriah and Bathsheba. The Lord also has put away your sin, the prophet said. He's a fully forgiven, justified, justified child of God. However, divine forgiveness does not always shelter us from the temporal consequences of the sins that we have committed. And though God forgives the sins of his believing children, yet he sometimes disciplines them for their sins to further humble us for our good and to cause us to be all the more watchful in the future. And so it was with David. And brothers and sisters, listen, though it would be wrong... It would be very wrong to conclude that every time tribulation comes into the life of a Christian, it's a specific act of divine chastisement that's connected to a specific sin or sins that we've committed. It would be wrong to conclude that because that's not true. However, at the same time, whenever afflictions and trials come, for whatever reason, it is still right and proper that we should be reminded of our own sinfulness that we should remember that any affliction short of hell is less than we actually deserve. Isn't that correct? And every affliction in the life of the believer, whether it is chastisement in the corrective sense or not, is still intended by God to humble us for our good, to sanctify us, to further purify us, that we might be partakers of His holiness. So, so this is the nature of the calamity that has come upon David. Now, in the rest of chapter 15, we have the record of David's flight out of Jerusalem. It's a very long record. Uh, there's many different angles from which you can look at it. I actually, in the past, have preached about probably five sermons on it, looking at Hittite the Gittite, and then Ziba, the manipulator, 
and Shammai and all these different characters that come up into the story, but we're not going to do that. In our time remaining, what I want to do is just to focus on David's response to this terrible trial and what we can learn from it. We're going to consider now the humble and godly response of David to his calamity. How did he respond? Well, let me ask first, how might he have responded to this? Well, it would have been very easy for David to just give up in complete despair. What's the use in trying anymore? Or I've blown it. I've blown it with my family. I've blown it with Absalom. Just to just fall into a heap of despair and to just give up. But that's not what he did, as we'll see. Or it could have been easy for him to respond by becoming bitter. Maybe even angry at God. He might have responded by murmuring and complaining. And, and if not verbally, yet in his heart, accusing the Lord of not treating him fairly. But he doesn't do that either. So how does he respond? And it's an important question because David's response provides a wonderful example of the way all of us, as God's people, should respond when difficult trials come upon us. Now, we often speak of trials and afflictions as a means of grace in the life of believer. And what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that they serve as a means that God uses to purify and to sanctify us, to conform us more and more into the image of his Son, uh, to uh, prepare us, make us fit for service, make us fit for heaven. And it's true that trials are intended by God to be a means of grace and of ultimate blessing for the child of God. But listen to me. Trials are not automatically a means of grace. They're not automatically a means of grace. It does partly depend upon the way we respond to those trials when they come. You remember the parable of the sower? The four soils that Jesus describes, and the seed is the word. The four soils refer to different hearts and how different men respond to the preaching of the gospel, to the word of God, and he you remember the, the one soil, the seed is cast upon the soil. It immediately springs up. But it has no root in itself. For when trials and tribulations and persecutions come, the seed is smothered out and it, it doesn't bring forth fruit. Now, in that case, those trials didn't act as a means of grace, right? They actually revealed that there was no grace there. So trials don't automatically act as a means of grace. There is, in part, it, it partly depends on the way, by God's grace, we respond to those trials when they come. There are means of grace to us only insofar as and to the degree that we respond to them properly. And this is what David did. And therefore, we can learn from the way David responds to this terrible trial in his life. Now, I said earlier that this was perhaps the darkest hour of David's life, but from another perspective, it was also his finest hour when we consider the godly manner in which he responded to it by God's grace. So how did he, how did he respond? Four, four things, four aspects of his response I want us to consider in the time remaining. First of all, David responds by humbly submitting to the sovereign hand of his heavenly Father. Humbly submitting to the sovereign hand of his heavenly Father. 
After regrouping on the outskirts of the city, in verse 18, he assesses and reviews the troops that followed him. Then we have his conversation with Ittai the Gittite. Uh, then in verse 23, as all the country, that is those who were sympathetic to David, wept with a loud voice, David and the band of people who were with him crossed over the brook Kidron toward the way of the wilderness. Let me just say something briefly about this brook Kidron. There's, there's almost something symbolic in this. The word Kidron literally means dark, and the name fit, for it was a dark, foul, filthy stream that ran through the valley of Moriah. There are reasons to believe that it, it may have been into this very brook that the sewage of the city was emptied, as also was the filth of temple sacrifices for sin. It was a dark, unclean brook. And it was also uh, underscored in the Gospels that it was over this very same brook that our blessed Lord Jesus passed on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told in John 18.1. So David crosses this filthy, foul, dark brook of Kidron. What a fitting picture of the darkness, the distress that's now come over David's soul. Having crossed, he's met by Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and also the Levites who had remained loyal to David. The Levites under Zadok's orders have also brought the Ark of the Covenant along. But let's notice what David said to Zadok and his humble submission to the sovereign hand of his heavenly father. Verse 15. Excuse me, verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Now notice first here that David refuses to take the Ark of the Covenant with him. Perhaps he remembered what happened in 1 Samuel 4 when Israel went to war with the Philistines in the days of Eli when Samuel was a little boy. At one point they took the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle they, as a kind of a good luck charm. They thought just having the ark would somehow secure the victory, but instead they were routed and the ark was taken captive. Well, David refuses this kind of rabbit foot theology. He refuses to consent to the have the ark, have God mentality. His theology is not of the superstitious kind, the kind that puts its trust in ceremony, the use of religious symbol to try to twist God's arm behind his back to make him do what we want him to do, the kind that's not concerned to seek God but to control him, not to submit to him but to use him. David knew that God had chosen Jerusalem for the ark's resting place and David was not going to sin by having it removed from its rightful place for political purposes. Instead, he determines to respond to his trial with the trusting recognition that this has come from God and with submission to God's sovereign purposes in it all, whatever they may be, whatever they may be. Now notice again this language. It's remarkable. Verse 25, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. 
Someone has put it this way. David says that his restoration, if there is to be such, does not depend upon having God's furniture, but upon having God's favor. And whatever God does, he's willing to submit, to leave it to him, and to put his trust in him. Now, this is the way we must respond when God brings trials and afflictions into our lives. Our greatest concern is to be that the will of the Lord be done. We must believe that His will is best, even though we may not understand what is happening or why it's happening. We must believe that if I'm one of His children, He is working all things together for my good, however dark my circumstances may be. And in that confidence, put our hand on our mouth and our face in the dust and submit to the hand of our Heavenly Father when He brings these things upon us. No murmuring, no complaining, no anger and resentment toward God, no little compromises of what is right to try to ease things over, to make things better, to try to get ourselves out of it. No, there must be complete submission to our Heavenly Father. And in that posture of complete submission, there's great relief for the Christian, great relief. You, the Christian who, who truly knows God's merciful heart and has experienced God's grace in the gospel and has learned to trust in His goodness in Jesus Christ. Maybe you sometimes heard people say, well, if I believe that God had anything to do with that, I could never love a God like that. You ever heard somebody say something like that? I could never trust a God like that. If I believe God had something to do with this terrible thing that has happened. We see for the Christian it's the opposite. If I did not believe that God was in control and that God was working through this for His glory and for His good, I couldn't handle it. That's my only hope. You see, that's, that's a difference of perspective in how we view God. And if we're Christians, we've come to know God as our Heavenly Father. We've experienced His mercy in our life. We've experienced His goodness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we can say, I don't understand everything that's happening. And this is painful. It hurts. It's terrible. It's awful. But I submit to the loving hand of my Heavenly Father. My trust and my hope is that I know that this isn't happening outside the hand of my Father and that he's in control. And there's peace, there's relief that the child of God finds in that posture. We are relieved of carrying God's load of what will happen to me when we cast our burden upon him and leave it in his hands. Well, you see, that's the language of David in our text, the language of submission to the sovereign will of his heavenly Father. He throws himself, himself into God's hands to do with him as he pleases. Secondly, Second element of his response. David seeks to make the best of his situation as it presently stood. Now that may sound contradictory at first. I just pointed out that David submitted to the so God's sovereignty in his trial. Yes, but some people seem to think that submit to God's sovereignty means that you just sit on your hands and, and do nothing. And that's wrong. David submits to God. He leaves his case in God's hands, but at the same time, he begins to apply himself to the effort to make the best of his situation. The effort to do what he can do to better his situation. 
Notice verse 27. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your sons with you, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So David's come up with a plan. He sends Zadok and his sons back to Jerusalem to form a fifth column within the city to serve as spies through whom he can keep informed of Absalom's plans and movements. Later he sends Hushai back to serve as a spy as well. So David is active. He's seeking to do what he can to better his situation. But now how could it be that on the one hand David submits to God in his trial, but on the other hand he makes efforts to better his situation and to make preparations for victory? Those two things may seem contradictory. But they're not, brothers and sisters. And we we need to realize that. Let me put it this way. You see, there is a difference between submitting to God's providence and becoming passive. Those are not the same thing. Submission is not the same thing as passivity. It's not the same uh, same thing as a kind of despairing, or it may be a lazy, do-nothing lack of effort. It's not to be confused with kind of curling up in a ball of self-pity that does nothing but brood over your bad circumstances. Or maybe a kind of pious inactivity. God's in control. I'm just going to do nothing. Let's take Joseph, the son of Jacob, as another illustration of this. You all know the story at age 17. Joseph was brutally victimized by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. Now put yourself into Joseph's shoes. He went from being a favorite son, heir of a wealthy herdsman, to being a household slave to an Egyptian named Potiphar. Now was Joseph a man, a young man who submitted to the sovereignty of God in his situation? Yes, all indications, you read the narrative, he doesn't become bitter. He doesn't cast off his faith in the Lord. He doesn't get angry at God. He continues to worship God. He continues to obey God. You remember that incident when Potiphar's wife sought to seduce him? How can I do this thing and sin against the Lord? He's still walking with the Lord. But at the same time, he didn't didn't curl up in a passive ball of self-pity or pious inactivity either. He played the hand dealt to him by God's providence the best that he could. And with God's help, what happened? You know that because of his diligence... Doing the household chores, it led to being promoted to to the position of chief steward. Well, there were more trials in Joseph's life. Potiphar's wife tells a terrible lie about him, and he's cast into prison, and on the story goes, and we all know it. Well, through all of the ups and downs of Joseph's checkered life, through all the difficult and painful providences, was Joseph submissive to the sovereign hand of his heavenly father? Yes, he was. Now, I'm sure he deeply struggled at times. I'm sure there were times he doubted. I'm sure there were times he gave in to unbelief, but, and it was hard. But yes, ultimately, in the overall pattern of his experience, he was submissive to the hand of his heavenly Father. Though there was no way G- Joseph could understand why in the world God had allowed these terrible things to happen to him. Yet he was submissive. There's no record that he veered off the path of integrity. No record of him complaining and murmuring or getting angry and bitter at God for all that happened to him. No record of him sulking and wallowing in self-pity 
In fact, it was he who said to his brothers many years later, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. However, at the same time, Joseph was not passive in his circumstance. He accepted it from the hand of God, but at the same time, he exerted himself in his situation so as to make the best of it. It wasn't the ideal of what he hoped his life would be, right? I mean, he could have just sit, he could have just wallowed in regret. Why did this have to happen to me? Really, I'm supposed to be back in Israel. I'm, I'm heir to a wealthy herdsman. All these wonderful experiences I could be having there. And here I am stuck in Egypt, so I'm just going to sit here and sulk. That's not what he did. He exerted himself to make the best of it, ultimately to overcome it. And you see, that's what you and I must do. That's what you must do, my friend. I don't, I don't really know many of you very well. I don't know what kind of trials and difficulties you may have faced and be facing and struggling with in your life even now, but this is what you must do. Don't give up in despair. Don't roll up in a ball of self-pity, pious inactivity that mistakes trusting would not trying. Submit to God. Whatever disappointment or trial has come into your life, and even though the pain is there and it's real and it's great, still you have to get up, assess your situation, get to work trying to make the best of it, and to do what you can to make it better. Think about it. What if David had said, Here I am, let the Lord do to me as seems good to him, and then just sat there and gave up in despair? Well, he would have never regained his kingdom, which he's eventually going to do. And in fact, he and his servants would have all been executed by Absalom when they called up to him. Now, none of that is to say that David was some kind of stoic who didn't feel pain. He felt deep and painful sorrow throughout this whole ordeal. I'm, I'm certain David felt like... I'm sure you have felt before like his emotional breath was completely knocked out of him. Great pain. In verse 30, we're told he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives barefoot with his head covered, symbolic expressions of grief in that culture, and he was weeping as he went up. He felt the pain. He felt tremendous sorrow and grief over what was happening, but by God's grace, he did not let it paralyze him. Most of you have heard of William Carey, the great Reformed Baptist missionary to India, the man who's been referred to as the father of modern, the modern missionary movement. And the success of Carey's labors, they were phenomenal. But he had no converts after the first six years, but he kept working. And eventually there was a steady stream of converts, 500 by 1813, which was still relatively early in his time there. And all he translated the scriptures into 34 languages, with six whole Bibles and 23 New Testaments. But though his work was one of steady progress, it was not without some extremely difficult trials and disappointments, and perhaps the greatest, apart from the death of his five-year-old son and his wife's poor health, was the fire of 1812. That fire destroyed the whole print house that he had with the entire stock of paper. It reduced the new Tamil and Chinese type to lumps of molten metal. Worst of all, it destroyed all of Carey's uncompleted 
manuscripts. And at the time, he was away at the college in Calcutta. And when he returned, he stood in the midst of the devastation. And here's what he said. In one night, the labor of years are consumed. The Lord has laid me low. Did he feel the pain of that? Do you think he felt like just giving up after all he had suffered and all he had gone through to establish that ministry? Did he feel terrible grief and sorrow in his heart? Did he feel like his emotional breath was knocked out of him? I'm sure that he did. But how did Kerry respond to this terrible trial? Or after having a few days to, to gather himself together and to get hold of himself, later he wrote to his friend Andrew Fuller these words. God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. We ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. That submission to the sovereign hand of his heavenly father. But that's not all that Kerry did. He got up and he, he didn't quit. He didn't go back to England and say, I give it up. He didn't. He didn't become a drug addict or an alcoholic, nothing like that. He got up, he got to work, replacing as many of the lost manuscripts as he could, and he continued to labor in that work until his death many years later in 1834, 22 years later. It would have been very easy for Carey to give up in despair, to become a passive, bitter man the rest of his days, but he didn't do that. And you must not do that either, my friend. David responded to his terrible calamity by humbly submitting to the sovereign hand of his heavenly Father, by working to make the best of the situation as it presently stood. And then thirdly, David prays to God in the midst of his trial with specific reference to the trial that had come upon him. Notice beginning in verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot, and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Just, just when it seemed that things couldn't get any worse, they did. That's the way it goes sometimes. Sometimes things go from bad to worse, don't they? Who was Ahithophel? Well, he was David's most skilled and his most trusted advisor. Said elsewhere, as I mentioned earlier, that the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel. It was a terrible blow to David. It would be like Clemson playing Alabama in the national championship and Deshaun Watson had defected to Alabama. Does that register with any of you? All right. So, <laughs> having Ahithophel as your counselor it would be like, some man writing on this had said it would be like having Bear Bryant. I would say it would be like having Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney for your football coach or Stephen Curry, LeBron James on your basketball team. And now you're going to battle, you're going to the game, the championship game, and LeBron has defected to Golden State. That's, any of you guys watch sports at all around here? Okay. 
All right, okay. Ahithophel was, Ahithophel was sharp. He had no peer. Savvy and success oozed from his counsel. And now David finds out that Ahithophel has defected to the side of Absalom. It's a deep blow for David for several reasons. There's the, first, there's the pain of being betrayed by a friend, a trusted friend. There's the fact that Absalom now has on his side the most gifted advisor in the realm, and then added to this is the fact that Ahithophel joining with Absalom indicates that in that man's very wise and shrewd judgment, he believed that Absalom's side was going to win. Well, how did David respond when he heard this piece of news? Well, we're told that he immediately shot up a prayer to God. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel in the foolishness. David falls back upon that higher counselor upon whose wisdom and power he could still trust. He prays to God. David believed that God holds the hearts of men in his hand. And he can turn them, as the proverb says, wherever he wishes, wherever he wills. That God could take the counsel of this extremely gifted advisor Ahithophel and turn it into foolishness. In fact, we learn from the Psalms that David was doing a lot of praying during this time. The inscription at the beginning of Psalm 3 says, The Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And in that Psalm, David prays, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. The Apostle James writes in James 5.13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Now, he's not saying there that the only time we should ever sing psalms is when we're cheerful and everything's going great. The only time we should ever pray is when we're suffering, we're going through a difficult time, and things are going bad. That's not what he's saying, but he is making comparison. That especially during times of suffering and trial, we should give ourselves to prayer. While especially during times of great blessing and joy, we should give ourselves to praise. Suffering times are praying times. Because prayer is the God-given means of easing our sorrow by casting our care upon the Lord. Prayer is the means by which we obtain grace from the Lord Jesus to uphold us in our trials and to help us and strengthen us to respond to our trials in the way that we should. And, and we find mercy from God to preserve us in our trials and to deliver us in our trials. And once again, David sets before us in this a wonderful example for the people of God. We too should pray when sorrows and trials roll over us like a flood. Because through Christ we have freedom of access to his throne of grace. We have a Savior who sympathizes with us. I like the old King James. He's, we do not have a, a high priest who is not able to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It really, that really captures the fault there. It's not just that he feels for us, but he feels with us in the midst of our sufferings as his people. That's the very thing Paul learned. You remember what? On the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. He feels with us. And he has, he has carried into heaven that reservoir of human experience. 
by which he is able to be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses and our trials because he was tested in all points like we are yet without sin. And therefore, we're said, therefore the, the writer of Hebrews says, we're to come boldly to his throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. David's prayer in verse 31 was a brief one, but as we'll see later in the story, God heard this prayer and he will answer it. There's one more element of David's response I want, to, want us to notice in this chapter. Fourthly, David worshipped. David worshipped in the midst of his trial. Verse 32, Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. There was Hushai and so on. I, I just find this whole thing remarkable. What's David doing? Right now, in the midst of this deep, dark valley and experience in his life, he's worshiping. He's worshiping God. David, at the top of the Mount of Olives, gave himself to the worship of God. What exactly he did, it doesn't say. Perhaps he sang praises to the Lord. Perhaps he composed and sang the third psalm that I just quoted from earlier. Perhaps he read from the holy scrolls of God's word, or he offered sacrifices. But the main thing I want us to see is that David focused his heart upon the greatness and the glory of God. And he worshipped him, even in the midst of this terrible distress and heartache. Someone has said, we may worship God in the minor key as truly as in the major. We may adore the Lord as genuinely in the valley of humiliation as from the heights of jubilation. And that's an important lesson. You know what's been my experience as a pastor over the years is often it's people respond... God's people will respond to deep, difficult, painful trials or just normal, everyday trials in exactly the opposite way. Instead of worshiping, they begin to neglect worship, to neglect private worship, family worship, to neglect public worship. But the worst thing you can do in the day of trouble is to neglect worship. You need to fix your eyes upon the glory and the greatness of God now more than ever. You need His Word now more than ever. You need to be reminded of His promises and of all of the great realities of the gospel now more than ever. You need to stir up your heart in the singing of His praises now more than ever. You need to be with the people of God now more than ever. Matthew Henry put it this way, weeping must never hinder worshiping. Because even worshiping Him in the midst of the trial is an expression of faith. By faith we worship Him still when it seems that He's forgotten us and forsaken us. Instead, faith makes its protest and says, I know that is not true. It cannot be true. For He has promised to never leave or forsake those who are trusting in Him. Therefore, regardless of what might be happening to me, I will worship His great and holy name. God is glorified. Christ is glorified when His people worship Him. Even when the fiery trial has come upon them, it shows that we serve Him and worship Him for who He is. Not just for what He gives to us or does for us, that He is our soul's great joy and delight. It shames the devil. 
It exalts Jesus Christ. And it brings down the smile and the blessing of God upon us. I was thinking about Paul and Silas in that prison. They've been beaten. They've been treated unfairly, unjustly cast into prison. I mean, don't sanitize what these guys experienced. They're, they're beat to a bloody pulp. And there they are in the prison, this dark prison. They're chained up. What are they doing? They're singing praises. And as they're singing praises, God breaks into that situation, right? And he intervenes, and they bring down the blessing of God upon their heads and upon others as well. Well, God is going to break into David's situation. David must cross his brook Kidron in sorrow and great agony of soul, but as we all know, this is not the last chapter in David's life. David will return. He will come back again to Jerusalem. The Lord will smite his enemies. He will come back with great joy and gladness, a better man and a more humble man than when he went out of Jerusalem. Well, my dear friends, we too will have to cross our Kidrons in this life. We can't avoid it. In this world, we will have tribulation, Jesus said. But be of good cheer, I have overcome this world. Our light affliction, but is, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And I close this session by reminding you that not only must David cross over his Kidron, and not only will we have our Kidrons to cross in this life as well, But our Lord Jesus also crossed the brook Kidron. Our King our King Jesus Christ of whom David is just a faint picture he passed over. That same dark filthy brook. He passed over it that gloomy night, rejected by God's people, a little band of followers on the way to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane. He was despised and forsaken by the people. He too was betrayed by one of his most trusted friends, Judas. But Christ was not burdened over any sins of his own that night as David was. His burden was our sin and our guilt that he took upon himself to the cross where he suffered and died in our place. And because he has crossed the brook Kidron himself, he's able to sympathize with us in our sufferings, for he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So look to Jesus Christ. Hold to Christ, sink or swim. Listen, he does not lead us through rooms that are darker than he himself has already gone through before us. We must take courage then and go through them, pass over our own much dreaded but smaller Kidrons, clinging to Christ in faith, come what may. He will never leave you or forsake you, and he has promised to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Bless his holy name.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider uh, these things that are so important. Lord, help us to take these principles to heart in the midst of our sufferings and afflictions, those we have experienced and are experiencing and those that are yet to come. Help us to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Help us to submit to the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. Help us not to give in to self-pity, but to continue to serve you and to make the best of the situation even when things are not ideal or what we would have wished. Help us to give ourselves to prayer and to worship, irrespective of the circumstances that may have come upon us looking to Jesus, trusting in your goodness that has been proven to us in many ways, but most strikingly in the fact that you spared not your own son, but gave him up for us all. How could we ever doubt that you love us when you've given to us the greatest gift of all, even your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, how much more with him will you not freely give us? All things, everything that is truly for our good. Help us to believe these things. Help our unbelief. Strengthen our trust. Help us to persevere in the faith in the midst of all of the difficulties and trials of this life, even those which we brought upon ourselves. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> reminded of those uh the words of the song we sing praise to the lord almighty uh great david's greater son and we're reminded um that as we look through